The reading this evening is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, and it can be found on page 808 of the Church Bibles. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, thank you, Deborah, for reading for us. And this evening, we're beginning a new series in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, you may well be asking the question, why are we starting in chapter 3 and not chapter 1? That's a good question uh, to ask. The answer is, do we preach through chapters 1 and 2 uh, over Christmas uh, just this last year? So rather than go back over them, we're carrying on uh, where we left off. Um, In the first two chapters, Matthew uh, gives us the birth narrative of Jesus that we're so familiar with. Uh, The angel Gabriel appears to Joseph uh, to tell him that his betrothed Mary is pregnant going to bear a son. The son's going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, and the son's going to save his people from their sins. And then Jesus is born to Mary in Bethlehem. He's attended by the Magi in Matthew, uh, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, as we well know, threatened by Herod, flees to Egypt, and then returns to live in Nazareth. That's uh, chapters one and two in about uh, 30 seconds. That's where we're joining Uh, the story. But before we get to that, I just want to look at the purpose statement of Matthew, which is on chapter 1, verse 1. And Roger referred to it earlier this morning, if you were here. Matthew's gospel account opens with this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is a book about Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As you know, in the New Testament, we've got four different gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and John, and they're all speaking about the same historical Jesus, but it's like, if you like, four different portraits of the same Jesus. And each portrait has its own distinctive mark from each of the artists. And this is Matthew's. He wants to show us that this Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Jews had this expectation of a coming son of Abraham, one who would bless all the nations, Genesis chapter 12, which we heard earlier on. And they had an expectation of a coming son of David, a great king who would rule not only Jerusalem, but rule the whole earth. Matthew's setting out to prove that Jesus is this promised king. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. Everything in the gospel set out to show us that that's who Jesus is, that he's come from heaven to save his people from their sins and establish his kingdom. So that's the background. That's what Matthew's about. With that in mind, uh, we'll come to our passage. But before that, uh, let's pray together. I'll just use the words of the last song uh, that we sang to pray. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into our willing souls. Let the presence of the risen Lord come, renew our hearts, and make us whole. Cause your word to come alive in us. Give us faith for what we cannot see, Give us passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, we pray, breathe new life in us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we finished the book of Malachi, uh, the last book of the Old Testament, and we saw there that God's last word to his people, 400 years of silence, his last word was, expect my prophets. Jews were told that before God would come to them, he would send one final prophet, a prophet like Elijah, who would call people to repentance. That's the last command God gave to them, expect my prophet. So let's read verse 1 to 6 of Matthew uh, chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt round his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Here we have the prophet's arrival. Matthew wants to be clear that John's appearance is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And he does that here by referring to an earlier prophecy than that of Malachi's, which we saw last week, that of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says, look, here's John. He's the prophet God promised who appears on the scene in the wilderness of Judea, baptizing and preaching to prepare the way of the Lord. And he's a striking figure, isn't he? And the Bible very rarely gives us uh, physical descriptions of what the characters look like. We don't really know 
uh, anything about Abraham, what he looked like, or Moses, for example. I don't know if you ever noticed that. We don't know very much at all about what Jesus looked like as well. But here we're told a surprising amount about John's appearance and even his diet. That should grab our attention. In one sense, John's painted as a simple man. He eats the diet of the rural poor. He's just eating what he can find. Locusts and wild honey. I don't know if that appeals to you. Uh, But he dresses simply too. He's in ordinary clothes, not in fancy robes, just a hair coat and a leather belt. He's a simple man. In one sense, that's just the picture. But to these Jews, those who know their Old Testament, well, his appearance is really unmistakable. He looks like the prophet Elijah. This is 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 7. The king Ahaziah, he hears this prophecy and he asks his servants, well, what kind of man was he who came and told you these things? And the servants answer him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And the king said, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. So John's a prophet like Elijah, the prophet promised in Malachi and in Isaiah, the one that he said he would send to prepare the way of the Lord. But how does John prepare the way for the Lord's coming? Well, it's two things. It's by preaching and baptising. First of all, preaching. He preaches a message, uh, the summary of which is given us in verse 1. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if you were to sneak a peek over the page at chapter 4, verse 17, just in the right-hand column of the right-hand page, you'll see there that Jesus preached exactly the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Now, when um, I was about, I think I was about 13, and my brother, who's uh, two years younger than me, um, we got given uh, this uh, computer scanner, like a kind of photocopier. It was given to us. It was put in our, our front room. And this is back in the 90s, this kind of thing you had in the 90s. You don't really use your phone now, I suppose. And like any teenage boys, what we thought we would do, of course, is not scan documents, but scan our own heads. So we opened it up, put our head inside it, and my brother sort of closed it like that, and we photocopied our own faces. And what you got was kind of like, um, like an X-ray, almost. It's probably really dangerous, wasn't it? But uh, like an X-ray, or like a kind of negative from a photo. And what was striking was, it was quite a dramatic kind of uh, blue and black photo. But what was striking is that in the photo, I had no front teeth. And my mum saw this and thought, oh, that's a bit odd. (laughs) And so a quick trip uh, to the dentist um, was uh, taken. And the dentist said, oh, yeah, you've got no enamel on your front teeth. Uh, By any chance, do you drink Coke? And, uh, of course, uh, we had like a Coke a day. This was the 90s. You didn't know what was wrong then. Um, So we had a Coke a day. Every lunchtime, we'd go with a can of Coke to school. Um, And he said, well, yeah, Coke and Dr. Pepper, they're the the two worst fizzy drinks that you can have. And they've got this thing called phosphoric acid in them. And it basically just erodes all your enamel. So if you're having one a day, you've lost all the enamel um, and your teeth will go soft. Eventually, they'll just fall out. And so he called us to repent. In fact, he called my mum to repent (laughs) because she was buying the Coke for us. See, we needed to know the bad news. We needed to know that if we carried on the way we were going, we were in big trouble, and we needed to change something. 
That's what it means to repent. To repent is to turn from your sin, from the error of your ways, and turn to God in faith. It begins with a change of mind. It begins with a conviction that what you're doing is harmful, what you're doing is wrong. And it ends with a complete change of direction, a change of life. Call to repent is a call to deal with a fundamental problem of the human heart, our rebellion against God's rule, our sin. And the gospel entails a call to repent. You get that from John 3, verse 1, verse 2, sorry, and from 4, verse 17. The gospel message in Matthew begins repent. If there's no call to repent, there's no true gospel. You need to know the problem. Now, this is also the common call of the prophet. The prophets in the Bible, they were always saying this, come back to God, turn from your sin. So John is firmly in their tradition. But what he says next is new. He tells them why to repent, and he says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the Old Testament prophets, they often spoke of God's kingdom. That bit's not new. But it was always something in the future. It was something further off. But John says God's kingdom, the rule of God's king on his earth, is at hand. It's so close you can touch it. It's imminent. John's message is that Jesus the Messiah King is about to come And you can become part of his kingdom, but only if you are willing to repent, to come under his rule. That's John's message. That's the essence of his preaching as he prepares the way for the Lord. Repent. Now we're going to hear more of that in a moment. The other thing that John does, of course, is he baptizes people. Matthew calls him the baptizer, John the Baptist. Now, why does he do that? It seems like a kind of strange thing to do. But baptism is symbolic of the washing away of sins. It's a physical sign that takes place on the outside, on the body, to show what needs to happen in the heart, on the inside. And verse 6 connects the two up together for us. So it says there in verse 6, "...they were baptised by him in the river Jordan." confessing their sins. So they heard John's call to repentance. They were convicted in their hearts of their sin. And so they expressed their desire to be washed clean by being baptised. And as they did, they publicly confessed their sins. When people really repent, they say so publicly. The prophet's arrival, it's a big deal. John comes to fulfill the prophecies of God's word and he comes to prepare the way for the Messiah by preaching, preaching a message of repentance and by baptising, baptising those who know they need their sins to be washed away if they are to enter the kingdom of heaven. Marvellous things are beginning to happen by the Jordan River. That's verse 1 to 6. But not everyone's happy about it. And let's turn now to verse 7 to 12, where we see the prophets preaching. Verse 7. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, we're introduced here to two parties of the Jewish religious and political leadership, the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're going to be big players uh, later on in the gospel. Apparently they've heard about this preacher in the wilderness who's causing such a stir and they go to see for themselves uh, what's going on and maybe even to be baptised themselves. It maybe indicates that here. that Maybe they're caught up in the kind of growing trend. Now perhaps um, you're new here to Chalmers. Perhaps this is your first uh, time here today. I wonder how were you welcomed uh, when you came in? Now, I hope you got a smile or maybe a handshake and a good to see you. Uh, we'd love to give you a cup of tea afterwards, that sort of thing. I doubt very much, though, you were welcomed like John welcomes uh, these folk. You brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes. You children of serpents. I don't think John would be allowed on the welcome team. Don't hold back, John. You know, tell us what you really think. Why is he so hostile? Well, the answer must be, I think, that he knows who these people are and he knows what they're like. He knows them well enough to know that their coming to baptism is not because they're truly repentant like the others. John sees these religious heavyweights, and he knows that were he to baptise them, well, it would just be for show. And we know this is what he thinks because of what he preaches to them. End of verse 7. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John knows these religious leaders well enough to know that they show no evidence, no fruit of repentance in their lives. And he knows why they don't. It's because they don't think they need to repent. They're confident that they're safe from the coming judgment because of their heritage. They presume that because they are descended from Abraham that they'll be safe from the consuming fire of God's wrath against sin. It will get everybody else, but it won't get us. But John says no. He says it doesn't matter who your ancestor is. If you do not repent, if you do not confess that you're a sinner in need of salvation, and more, if you don't look to Jesus to wash you clean on the inside, well, there'll be no safe place for you to hide on the day of judgment. This is the point John goes on to make next in verse 11. I baptise you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me, he's mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We need to realise that the mere act of baptism, washing with water, though it's important, it isn't what ultimately makes a person clean. It expresses repentance, but it doesn't deal with sin. But one is coming after John who's mightier than John. In fact, so much greater than John that he's not even worthy to carry his shoes for him. 
Jesus Christ will deal with the punishment for sin on our behalf. He'll die in our place for our rebellion against God. And he'll bring about the rule of God in our hearts. He comes to give supernatural power to clean up the human heart. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Just like the blacksmith's fire purifies metal, so the Spirit given by Jesus will come in and purify the repentant believer's hearts, really dealing with sin on the inside. See, all John can really do, and all any uh, preacher can really do, is show you your need for Jesus. It's Jesus who can really deal with your sin. But there's a strong warning here too, isn't there? But if you won't repent, if you won't turn to him as your saviour, well, you're going to have to face him as your judge, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. One day Jesus is going to sift out the wheat from the chaff. Those who've repented will be gathered to him. But those who refuse to repent, these are terrifying words, aren't they? The chaff will be burnt with unquenchable fire. Serious stuff. John's not afraid to tell it straight, is he? And I wonder, what will you do with his message? It might be that you find yourself in a similar situation to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Maybe you've come from a religious background. Maybe your family have got a long Christian heritage. Maybe you've been part of a religious tradition for many years. There are lots of folk like that in the world today. Could it be that you have presumed that your background is some kind of insurance policy against God's judgment. Maybe because of your membership in a church or because your parents were believers. You've presumed that all is okay with you and God. And perhaps now you're just realising that you've never really repented, that you never really recognised that you need forgiveness. And John's warning is alerting you to the truth. What do you think? There'll be a point when it's too late to repent, when that great separation is made, but it's not yet. As long as you have breath in your body, you can still turn to Jesus. You can confess your sins and be saved by the wrath, from the wrath to come. So can I urge you, if you've come to that realisation, don't put it off any longer. I'd love to speak to you after the service to help you make that change. But for all of us who are here, even if we were brought to faith in Jesus many years ago, well, we know, don't we, that the repenting never stops. Famously, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg church door, the event that sparked the Reformation, The first thesis said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. We all need to continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We all need to continue confessing our sins as we allow the Spirit to purify our hearts 
and lives. Now we've seen the prophet's arrival and we've heard the prophet's preaching. He's been preparing the way of the Lord. And now in verse 13, the Lord himself comes. We're introduced to the prophet's Messiah, the one mightier than John arrives at the Jordan. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? It's a bit of a puzzle, isn't it? We know John's baptism was for sinners people who are sorry for their sin. It was for repentance. But Jesus is a perfect man. He, he never sins, so he doesn't need to repent to have his sins washed away. So this is a puzzle. And John's puzzled, isn't he? He tries to stop him. He says, no, look, it should be the other, other way around, Jesus. Look, I'm the sinner here. You should be baptizing me. So why does Jesus feel he needs uh, to do this? Well, he gives us his answer in verse 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So are you clear? Doesn't help that much, does it, you think? Well, it is a tricky bit, and we're going to just dig into it and try and work out um, what this means. Now, now, as you can imagine, the suggestions of what this might mean are numerous. Um, When he says that his baptism will fulfill all righteousness, there's several... um, options out there. Let me just give you my best shot um, at what I think uh, it means. First of all, the word fulfill. The word fulfill in Matthew, it's a word that's always connected to the fulfillment of a prophecy of some kind. It appears um, 15 times. In all other 14 occasions, uh, Matthew uses it to, in that sense, to fulfill a word of scripture of some kind. So it makes sense that it's continuing that here, that some kind of prophecy is in mind. And he also says that it's to fulfill all righteousness. And so we're looking for a prophecy that speaks about righteousness. That would be logical. And the fact that Matthew seems to be focusing on Isaiah here and the servant songs, we've got that quote earlier on, uh, it might be that we turn somewhere like Isaiah. And I'd like us to to do that. I think this is where we can go. So Isaiah 53 um, verse 11 and 12. It's page 614. So just flick back there. Keep a finger in Matthew 3 and back to Isaiah 53. Page 614. So let me read verse 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So you pick that up. The song speaks of this righteous servant bearing the iniquities, the sins of others, and dying in their place in order to make them righteous. 
I think this makes some sense of what Jesus is doing uh, in his baptism. See, Jesus could, he could have been up front with John, couldn't he? He could be up front calling people uh, to repent and baptizing them. But instead, he's down there with the sinners. He's identifying himself with those he came to save. He's being numbered with the transgressors. If you like, right at the start of Jesus' ministry, as Jesus goes under the water, he's giving us a picture of what he will do. He will die the death that we should all die for our sins in order to wash us clean. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous in God's sight. Now come back with me to Matthew uh, chapter 3. Now John may or may not have grasped that. Um, it doesn't tell us, but he understands enough to know that he should do what Jesus is telling him to do, and he consents, he baptises him. What happens next shows us immediately that it was the right thing to do, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptised, immediately he went up from the water And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. There's so much that we could say here. We could speak of the Trinity. It's one of the clearest passages in the Bible that show us that God is one God in three Persons, so the Son is baptized, the Father speaks, the Spirit comes down. Or we could speak of the empowerment for Jesus' ministry by the Spirit. That's certainly there. We're going to see that next, uh, next week. That's it there in chapter 4. And we should notice, too, that there's a reference to the opening up of heaven on earth. Did you spot that? Remember John's preaching earlier on? that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that that's really happening. John wasn't kidding. God is beginning to bring his kingdom on earth through his son, Jesus. All those things are there. But as we draw to a close, I want to just stay with Matthew's theme of fulfillment, the fulfillment of prophecy. So remember why the gospel's written. It's written to prove that Jesus is God's Messiah, He's God's king. Matthew wants to persuade us that Jesus is the one that all the Old Testament, prophecy, Old Testament prophecies pointed to, that he's the one that we should be expecting who's going to save his people from their sins. So specifically here then, we have a reference to another of Isaiah's servant songs from Isaiah 42. It's this last reference we're going to go to, page 602. Page 602. Now, this isn't the only reference. Robin mentioned a couple of other ones at the start of um, the service where God speaks of his son. We heard those earlier on. But here's another, another one, and you see the similarities here. Chapter 42 of Isaiah, page 602, verse 1 and 2. In this uh, song, this other servant song, God speaks. This is what he says. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. 
See, at the baptism, God the Father is confirming that his son Jesus is the servant of Isaiah 42. He's the one he's chosen. He's the one in whom he delights, the one with whom he is well pleased. And Jesus is the one on whom he puts the Spirit, and with this purpose, to bring forth justice or righteousness to the nations. Here's the one sent from heaven to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth for everyone who repents and turns to him for salvation. I don't know if you've ever read Matthew's Gospel before. I hope this has encouraged you, that it's really got some wonderful things to say to us about the Lord Jesus. And I hope you're looking forward to this series over uh, the next few weeks. What have we seen tonight? Well, we've seen the prophet John. He has prepared the way of the Lord. And I trust that he's done that for us for this series too. He's told us we need to repent. He's told us that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And most of all, he's pointed us to the arrival of the king. The one who can bring us into the kingdom. God's son, his servant Jesus, the Messiah, who will bear the sins of his people and who washes repentant people clean. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, first of all, for sending your servant John. Thank you for his clear message to humanity that what we need to do is to repent. And we thank you, too, that he has pointed us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who can wash us clean and who can bring us into your kingdom. Father, thank you most of all, though, that you sent not just John, but your son, the Lord Jesus, the one with whom you are well pleased, We thank you that he came to save us, to really deal with our sin, to grant us the Holy Spirit who would clean up our hearts. We thank you for all that you've done in Jesus. We pray for us ourselves as we go through this series, would you reveal more and more of who he is and what he's done for us. Help us to love him. Help us to repent of what we need to repent and turn and follow him with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.